Hello, and welcome to the Theological Family Ministry Podcast, a podcast for parents as well as children and youth ministry leaders. We are dedicated to showing how theological study and biblical application relate to the discipleship of children and youth. As always, we're hosted by Pastor Ben Palaz, the pastor of family and children's discipleship at Curtis Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia, and Tony Trussoni, the family and student pastor at Faith Family Church in Finksburg, Maryland. All right, Tony, how are you doing, man? It's good to be back with you. I'm doing well. I got some sleep uh, after the last podcast we recorded. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's weird recording a podcast uh, now that will come up uh, this week as of the recording uh, before, after we've recorded a podcast that will come up in two weeks. So it gets a little confusing and hard to keep track of, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm glad I've got a little more space than I did last night. I was crammed into my closet, but it was a little warmer there in my closet than it is in my office with cinder block walls and exterior facing walls. So I had to turn the heater off too so you don't hear the buzz. Uh, so yeah, well, so Tony, I've got a question for you. Uh, you're You're a history guy, right? I am a history nerd. Okay, so what's what's the most recent book of history you've read, or the most interesting that, that stands out to you? Uh, I'm reading a, uh, I'm listening on Audible to a biography about uh, President Grant right now uh, by John Edward Smith, and I'm really enjoying that. So, uh, John Edward Smith, rather, I think. So I've been enjoying that. And this, you've kind of been into the presidential biography thing, right? Yeah, definitely. I've gotten into a lot of them. I actually really enjoyed, uh, there was one by about Truman. I don't remember the author recently, and that was really a blast to me. Okay. Yeah, I've uh, I've listened to a few memoirs from um, recent presidents, and I uh, found those interesting. And there's, you know, lessons to be learned. I, I imagine you've picked up some things just uh, at different points. Um, well, today we have a guest who, with whom we have history. You and I have a long history, and uh, that history dates back to when we had a history with this guest, uh, and he is a specialist in history, among other things. Uh, so we want to welcome today W. Dr. W. Brian Shelton. Uh, he served as a provost in Northeast Georgia and a professor of theology at several different Christian colleges. Welcome to the TFM podcast, Dr. Shelton. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on Theological Family Ministry podcast. It's an exciting one, and it's nice to reunite with both of you. Amen. Well, today we, we brought him in. I had hoped to do this before uh, Reformation Day, but that came and went, and uh, I thought, well, let's just reach out to you to him anyway, um, because I know that you're a big fan of Martin Luther. Have you done any writing on Luther? I have not written much on Luther. At the turn of the millennium, I had proposed a book on Martin Luther for millennials because there were so many issues like angst and identity that I felt like millennials really related with, but it was rejected and uh, the, it never got written. Uh, but I do like Martin Luther, and it was really coincidence. You probably saw uh, the blog recently on the contributions of Luther. I like him because he's exciting and passionate and uh, focused, uh, but at the same time, he has a lot of theological breadth, and he recognizes the value of theology in all areas of life. And in particular, as I think of both of you, after went on from undergraduate to a seminary that is recognized as having a strong reformed element, I suppose I like Luther 
because he kind of balances a lot of the triumph of Calvin uh, that you see in books and in, uh, in kind of popular discourse. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't know, I guess, the, the level of interest um, or that you had proposed a book, but I knew some of that. And just that your your background was in church history, even though you're teaching primarily theology when we were students of yours um, in college. But does what happened in the history of the church really matter for us today? Um, and, and even closer to home, we, we focus on ministry to children and youth and to the family at large. But does it matter for kids and youth today? Church history is super valuable in a couple obvious ways both of which I think matter to kids and to youth. The first way is identity. Church history tells us who we are and where we came from. For example, every denomination like Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, has a story of convictions and even separation from other Christians. Symbols like IHS and you know the Cairo, which looks like an X and a P that will hang on the Christmas tree, they have a backstory in our history. Our beliefs about Jesus are based on the Bible, but the church still had to interpret and they had some debate and had to resolve some fundamentals in venues that we call church councils. All of these reflect our identity. Uh, A second way I think church history is valuable is it does have power for instruction. Church history relates the experiences of God's people for us, with lessons of what to do right and what we've done wrong. Uh, For example, when our nation is threatened with war, good thinkers can go to the early church father, Augustine, and read his work on just war, where he provides some criteria for thinking through if a war is defensible. Individual stories, they can also instruct us. I'm thinking of the same Augustine, We view him as a super-righteous monk who wrote valuable theology about God. But his autobiography, called Confessions, describes how he was a thief, a fornicator, a philosopher, who longed for truth in various religions before he became a Christian. Uh, People in church history can't get their locker open, and they feel left out by their friends. Uh, Dante was so in love with a woman named Beatrice that he couldn't eat and was devastated when she married another And it's reflected in his writings and theology. So those are a couple ways that kind of encapsulate all church history and uh, its value for everybody. That's awesome. Thank you. You know, I think it's interesting that we get to talk to you about this. uh, Because in a lot of ways, uh, (laughs) Ben and I poked around about... uh, my 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 nerdiness about history and sometimes his as well uh but my real great passion is often historical theology and i largely really gathered that from your historical theology class at uh, tfc and i really want to thank you for that well i appreciate that i remember you both as really good students you know i don't remember you as history nerds as much as i just remember you as nerds <laughs> <laughs> And of course, I'm just kidding. Um, to your, for your audience, uh, you're both super cool. Um, but th- those were great days, and you were good students. And uh, I, I appreciate the interest that we share together. Wonderful. So, all right, well, well, thank you for the kind What are some of the most important lessons we can learn in general through the study of history uh, of the Lord's Church? Hmm. I'm thinking kind of three categories of important lessons. Church history helps us realize 
first of all, simple people can do amazing things with God's help. Brother Lawrence is known to us today from the 17th century because he experienced only satisfaction and peace, he said, when he served as a mere cook and a sandal maker for other Carmelite monks, and then also served the poor in the same way. In 1985, Henry Nouwen left his professorship at Harvard to join La Arche community in France, spent nine months living and sharing in life with people, many of whom had learning disabilities. And so that simple people have done great things, I think is kind of a, a first group of lessons that are always available. Second, the church sometimes loses. We experience unfriendly cultures and we can be persecuted. We have debates and sometimes the biblical answer doesn't win. Uh, we encounter corruption. We've seen it in history, even sometimes among church leaders. And it brings embarrassment to the body of Christ. We take these losses, we recover from them, and we move on for the cause of the kingdom on earth. Uh, but those lessons are also in church history. And third of all, I think, you know, one of the great and exciting things about history is we can see that God is at work in the world. Early church councils battled and they battled over how Jesus could take on flesh and still be God. This doctrine of Jesus' person is essential for our faith, and we believe the most honoring view of Jesus won out. Uh, the church should be recognized for starting orphanages, recovery shelters, hospitals, schools, and universities. Christians do great things throughout church history, and by studying it, one realizes that God works through his people to show love as the gospel and to preach words as the gospel, both. I think all of those are kind of valuable categories of ways we can learn from church history. You know, I actually really like how you pointed out uh, the ways in which studying history shows us about the times that the church lost. Uh, and I think that that is so relevant to today. I mean, even to families that I think live in a culture where we feel like Christianity is losing, where we feel like the kingdom is really being set back uh, and we can be so often hopeless. But I think we get f refreshed hope when we study Christians that have lived in times such as those in the past and have been faithful and how God has worked. Yeah, I, I would second that. What are some engaging ways you think that we can introduce church history to kids and youth uh, in a way that piques their, their interest? Or is it illustrations, is it a class on it? Uh, what are your thoughts? Stories. Tell them dramatic stories of perseverance, such as Luther we name, standing against the Holy Roman Empire. Tell them sacrificial stories, such as Mother Teresa among the poor in Calcutta. Tell them stories of discovery, such as the Monk Gregor Mendel observing the genetics of pea plants. There are a plethora of stories uh, which can be told in class, on retreat, uh, around a campfire, or even in a car on the trip. Now, of course, in order to teach our kids and youth about church history, <laughs> we have to uh, know a little bit about it. And so um, there, there are lots of church history books. Uh, and even though those might be instructional for parents or youth workers to be able to tell stories, uh, the truth is, is a lot of those resources, they're good for kids and youth to look at. Um, I know that later, listening to your podcast, you might ask me about recommendations uh, for people 
uh, to be able to read, and I have a couple. For now, simply to say that uh, there are church history books that are themselves engaging. To have them around the house means that a, a child might open it and look at the pictures and begin uh, to understand the history of the church, but also to imagine, because imagination is an important part, including even of stories. So those are maybe the most engaging ways, I think, that we can introduce uh, this important topic with all of its treasures to kids, to youth, and even to adults. That's Yeah, the power of story is, uh, I think, every culture that I'm familiar with at whatever time has enjoyed telling stories, and it just has the ability to, to grip our imagination in a way that prose uh, does not, or an outline. Um, and I'm looking here at your blog, and I'd seen uh, several months back that you had written about uh, quest for the historical apostles. Um, I think I'd seen a number of years before you've written about martyrdom, and so I'm sure there's a number of um, interesting things that you've picked up along the way. And so all of that, I, I can see how it would inform that. The martyrs are some of the most exciting stories, and the apostle stories center on the book, Quest for the Historical Apostles, that I wrote. And their stories um, sometimes feel untrue, sometimes true, and sometimes we don't know. But either way, they're absolutely fascinating. And they describe, you know, values that we still share, what it means to be rejected and to suffer loss, what it means to go to a foreign country and be really foreign when we feel called by God. Stories are shared by us because we have links to the people and the experiences contained in the story. And, and like Solomon, we realize that there's nothing new under the sun. And that's why church history can be so so important and such a quality teacher for us all. Mm. That's good. So now what are some interesting stories and people from church history that would catch the interest or curiosity of young people? And uh, I think that's a great, Ben actually wrote these questions. Uh, and I think it's a great question to ask as, uh, especially I try to enliven my kids, uh, in that kind of thing. And I notice how church history can, can really light them up too. Hmm. Where do you begin answering the question about fascinating stories and people from church history? You know, we mentioned Martin Luther a couple times. I think he's a classic, not because he stands large on the timeline, but because of the obstacles that he personally overcame. Few people have ever been so clearly documented as frustrated. In his case, overwhelmed by feelings of guilt. For every young person who wonders if God actually loves him or her, if God is really there, and how important it is to get past yourself to discover God, this 16th century pastor offers help. He was a tormented soul. You know, uh, phrases like throwing inkwells at the devil uh, because he felt distracted in his effort to serve God, that he eventually found a niche, a place for him to serve in quite a mighty way. A second fascinating person from church history, in the early church Perpetua, and the story that bears her name, Perpetua and Felicitas. She was a young woman, a mother, and a daughter who was about to be thrown to wild beasts and the amphitheater of Carthage. And it seems simply because she was a Christian. Uh, this writing is partially her journal and partially the testimony of another who was on the fringe of the event. Uh, you see her trust God, even when her dad says, deny Christ and stay alive to raise your baby. Perpetua refused. 
and she instead stayed faithful publicly to Christ, and God strengthened her faith and showed his strength in her life. Uh, Eventually she lost her life, but not after influencing a lot of people along the way. So from Martin Luther to Perpetua, I think you have lots and lots of exciting stories, and I can give you another half dozen or another dozen. Uh, But these are stories of strong people with inadequacies that, well, they made it into the church history talk for today. Uh, so I'm not surprised that you brought up Martin Luther. Um, when he, it seems like I heard someone say he didn't have a thought that he didn't write down. He just – there's so much uh, documentation from him. Uh, but he's such a colorful figure that you know you mentioned about the throwing the inkwells. He also said a lot – a lot of things even more colorful than that that you might be able to share publicly, um, especially with children. Um, but just hearing the struggles, uh, and I think that does make it so, so relatable. I imagine you're familiar with uh, the church historian uh, Carl Truman. Mm-hmm. He's He said that you know being a someone who teaches church history, you have to have a, a certain national inquirer edge to your lectures to – uh, get people to listen, and I imagine you probably resonate with that. Some people approach it thinking, oh, this is dry and dusty and boring, uh, but there's actually a lot of life to it. Yeah, I think for Luther, he's appealing to the range of emotions. He's angry, he's bold, uh, he's pronounced, um, you know, yes, select language for the Pope, including calling him the Antichrist. Uh, but at the same time, there's quite a bit of humility, and there is a brokenness. And there's inadequacies. And so at any given time in his life, everybody can relate to at least one emotion uh, that they themselves often feel like they hate. You know, sometimes we, we hate ourselves because of how we act. And in the end, that's not what measures the contributions collectively, but rather it is what we were able to do when we were frustrated. And sometimes frustration is righteous. You know, you think of righteous anger with Jesus, but Luther displays quite a bit of it. And sometimes we can say it's not righteous, but sometimes we say, you know what, he accomplished great things, and so I'm not going to measure him by his tone. I'm going to measure him by his heart and by his labor. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, and I think it's it's just so wonderful how he was so bold in that way that, you know, I, you brought up uh, Martin Luther versus John Calvin in some ways. And, and it's fascinating studying them historically, such different temperaments and personality. I mean, uh, John Calvin was a guy who, when he was brought back after being fired, he just continued the sermon series he was in without even bringing it up. And Martin Luther's a guy that would never do that. Uh, and in some ways, God used him especially because of that. <laughs> two different lessons for two different people in two different situations. Yes. So, obviously, church history by its definition is something that's in the past, but can it help us with the complexities of modern life? We face a, an array of challenges, and, I, and I've got some specifics in mind, but just generally, I mean, do you think it can deal with uh, the, the complex issues we face uh, just in the West today? Absolutely. Uh, this is part of the, its instructional value from the two categories above, your listeners are likely aware of how to apply the Bible for life situations, even though it was written at a different time. Without seeing church history, a book on it as revelation, the same skills of lesson learning and wisdom, what to do and what not to do, for life application is contained there in church history. 
So, of course, it speaks to the complexities of the modern life. So let's, let's just throw a few examples your way. So how about technology? Technology in church history often seems outdated to us, but it is there. Papyrus and parchment was innovative for the Apostle Paul to write letters, and because of the technology, it constructs Scripture today. Uh, the papyri were as novel as the technology of Roman roads that allowed the gospel to travel on superhighways that it could not have done a century before. So technology is there. Uh, some great successes of technology in church history is the invention of Gutenberg's movable type printing press. A uh, little known fact, something like 90% of all works printed in Germany in the 16th century were by Martin Luther, the theological reformer. And that was because the printing press was just coming into its popularity. And they didn't have a lot of works because there weren't presses before. And so uh, the values of a reforming church were, were perpetuated. In fact, in Germany to inspire a new Lutheran church. Isaac Newton could identify gravity as a technology, but still realized that it was part of God's design in nature. Billy Graham used the radio to preach when churches were not engaging this technology in the mid-20th century. So those are some examples of relevance, but it didn't answer the question, Ben, of lessons. I think the lesson is that Christians can pursue knowledge, technology, as a good thing, and it can honor God. Like anything else, it can be abused for a cause. It can be addictive or distracting from the cause. And like good stewards, we have to use the technology well in order to glorify God and to further the church. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's helpful. So how about the, the Christian, and then by extension, the church's involvement in culture and society? We live in a, a time of outrage and uh, political disagreement, and we don't disagree well. How can we learn from the saints of old about how to live in a place that's ultimately not our home? Mm. Even from the early church, Christians fell along two different lines of engaging culture. Some embraced and employed cultural values, thinking of uh, Justin Martyr and Athenagoras. They used philosophical language and social norms and things people valued in culture to justify Christianity as culturally relevant. On the other hand, some Christians rejected cultural values. Uh, for example, Perpetua, we described, she refused to deny Christ under persecution and was willing to give her life as martyrdom. Uh, that's a rejection of the culture that is there. And there are several examples in history in which people did not embrace the cultural opportunity to their detriment, or they realized it was a compromise of the faith. And so in any given situation related to culture and society, a Christian has to decide what's best, what's appropriate, what's biblical. Maybe the best example of engaging culture is evangelicalism. It arose in the mid-20th century because the church felt like some fundamentalists were too opposed to cultural values that really maybe could have been neutral. Uh, they used the term holiness to reject movies and games. Well, these things don't define the gospel, so evangelicals accepted cultural values, such as Billy Graham using the radio. 
more to win the hearts on things that really mattered as opposed to the, the things that were, were cultural. So I think sometimes cultural values are good, sometimes they're bad, and sometimes I think we can see them as neutral. Okay. Yeah, that's um, that's good nuance. So how about the just the family itself? Um, we've seen a lot of decay and breakdown of the family, um, and we could just really expound on that. But how has the church before viewed the family as an institution from God? Susanna Wesley comes to mind. She cultivated the faith of her children. I think there were 19 or 21 of them. And the effect was formative, uh, at least on one or two of uh, her children, particularly in the life of John Wesley. Uh, from this faith in the family, he started small groups outside revivals, and there was a major revival within the Anglican Church of 18th century England. Meanwhile, John Wesley's wife was ready to string him up for always being itinerant, traveling around Europe, preaching. He was away from home, away from the family. So an example of uh, faith commitment in the family and faith commitment outside the family that might even compete with family, the complexity is there. Uh, both speak towards a balance in family values, I think. Uh, you know, we keep mentioning Luther. How can you avoid him? He wrote a treatise on teaching children in Sunday school to foster the training of youth within the church programs. I think one of the lessons uh, for the family in church history, it's a hard lesson, but families have to remember that this is an institution that is not the ultimate expression of the gospel. Think of Jesus in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and is not, not willing to leave father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and even their own life should not be my disciple. Family is a gift from God, and our children are also. We should show them the way of faith. Uh, but a family that serves outside the home or sacrifices to make their family less comfortable, uh, this is a truer expression of the gospel uh, than just the family for its own end. So how about death itself? as something as a culture we're very uncomfortable with. And... Uh... It's it's still considered taboo. We're, we're searching for the fountain of youth and just uh, approaching death. Church history is not so different than contemporary church history in that uh, death has never been a super popular topic. But in older days and other generations, they dealt with it more readily. And in that sense, there are lessons for us and their, their comfort, uh, their willingness to confront and realize death. They provide healthy perspectives for us on, on this topic. When great people gave their lives, the martyrs Lawrence and Sebastian in the early church, they remind us that life is fleeting, but a reward awaits us in heaven. Church history can give us famous eulogies and words to say when someone needs comfort at the loss of a loved one. I'm thinking of uh, the Reverend Michael Judge, his name was. Uh, he was the first person declared dead on 9-11. And at his funeral, I have it written here, it was spoken. And the next few weeks, we're going to have names added of people who are being brought out of that rubble. And Michael Judge is going to be on the other side of death to greet them instead of sending them there. He's going to take them by the arm and say, welcome, I want to take you to my father. I'm thinking even tombstones in a graveyard walk with our kids 
they have symbols, right? They show signs of faith, mm-hmm. and they also help us to anticipate heaven on the other side. I think so that cool. that last part is especially so essential. And looking at you know church, the focus on death in church history, because we really don't, you know, even though we're Christians that believe in a kingdom beyond this life, I think our generation of Christians seldom focus on death. And I mean, you look to past Christians. I mean, the topic of death came up left and right. I'm a big Puritan fan, and I mean, it was like every other word was uh, contemplating death, and that's why a lot of the old hymns. I mean, almost every old hymn, the last verse contemplated the impact of this theological truth upon our end to this life. Uh, do you see any patterns that have been repeated in the church that could have possibly been prevented by paying attention to church history? Human frailty. Leaders sometimes think themselves invincible, and they fall. Uh, the church takes sides on going to or abstaining from war. Both sides can claim God is on their side, and sometimes he is, and sometimes he's not, and sometimes he's on neither side. Lost causes. Movements believe that they are the revolution of God on earth. They might have success, and they might bring really good reform, and then they are defeated in their causes. These three in particular are kind of patterns that have a sad element to them in church history, I mean, they can have a very positive element. We do recognize that wars, as horrible as they are, that they might have good causes and they might have good results, and we want to call it good. And lost causes, sometimes we're glad that when they're lost, but we're a little bit different and maybe a little bit better even because of them. And then particularly leaders in human frailty, there are so many stories of fallenness, people who were considered righteous and godly, and they were not. They were imperfect. And these patterns are consistent, and these patterns are quite instructive. Mm-hmm. You see, these days, the and, and this is not a, a new phenomenon, it's just, I guess you can go wider because of the internet, but the celebrity pastor leader, but throughout history there have been others uh, who have been charismatic leaders people have looked to, and sometimes they have fallen, uh, and we've just seen a, a spell of that recently. Um we just lack sometimes the awareness uh, that, like you said, and so I, I think it just directly speaks into our day. Yes, I'm, I'm thinking of Mike Warnke all of a sudden, which was a name from the 70s and 80s, which is church history, but he had written a really vivid biography of involvement in satanic occult activities, even worse. And he was popular for his testimony. He was a comedian, so very charismatic and People were awed. They were mysteriously looking into the occult for the first time. And then, I guess, part of it was not true. And when he was publicly called on it, there was the realization that he had embellished. And so I think afterwards, people just wondered, well, what am I supposed to do with the fact that he impacted my life? How do I do I reject every good thing in every way that I'm different for the better now? And so, yes, leaders do fall. Uh, medieval popes in particular, they didn't live up to their own standards of, of celibacy, for example. And we can be really hard on that era. Uh, but at the same time, there are, there are people and they are fallen. And, and suddenly the French Revolution uh, comes to mind. Napoleon Bonaparte is a, is a great, huge presence. Uh, but in the end, even he had the Waterloo.
I think when we see that kind of perspective, we don't discount even the work of God in our days among those who've fallen. You know, I mean, when high-profile pastors uh, denounce the faith, even we can realize that mm. God works and works through faulty vessels. God worked through a donkey in the past, and I mean, God worked mightily through Martin Luther, for example, as we've talked about over and over, who wrote on the Jews and their lives, uh, a substantial. Uh, piece that really contributed to the Holocaust, sadly. Uh, and, you know, I just think it's fascinating how God works through us imperfect vessels and how he doesn't need us, but he works through us. And God doesn't stop that. That's not negated when somebody screws up. I have a niece who named her first daughter Corey after Corey Ten Boom, who is a, a great example of someone who lived among fallenness as a survivor of uh, of Raven's, Robinsbrook concentration camp. And there's an example of church history impacting the present as we might even name our children after some of these particular figures who stand against these particular patterns that we're talking about. But just suddenly came to mind as a little way church history can impact us in namesake. You've done that right, Tony? We have, uh, yeah. Our son is... Uh, I was going to name my son Titus Calvin Gersoni, and not for the sake of the Reformed doctrine. I, I just think his study of Scripture and his commitment to exegetical skills was is just really important in church history. Uh, but we end up naming him Titus Sibbs after Richard Sibbs, and I, I think Ty, Richard Sibbs is one of the greatest like pastors in terms of shepherds of all of church history, and just such a great example that I think you more you study his life, the less you see that is kind of concerns that you see in some other figures. I have a friend who gave a middle name, Ambrose, to one of his sons. Ambrose, the church father, baptized Augustine, and that's cool. God has given all of your listeners that middle name slot for their kids to be able uh, to provide a name from church history. So good for <laughs> Anthony and Danielle for this, and that puts you, Tony, ahead of Ben in, in my church history book. How do you think, because this is a, a bigger picture question, how do you think the church of the past would view the church of today in terms of our ministry to children and to youth and to families and just being a church at large? I like to believe that most church figures would be excited by the contemporary church, excited about children's ministries and youth groups, uh, historically, those the church has not been able to afford that level of specialization. I think they would like Christian radio, and uh, I think they'd like some Christian TV. Uh, like us, they recognize the value of educating the young and seizing every opportunity to be able to preach the gospel or to be able to talk about God and share the values that are good for the our lives. The church of the past might be surprised at the casual culture in our churches, it would be very foreign to them. Historically, Sunday was dedicated priority for families who devoted themselves to church. You know, you get dressed up because you're honoring God when you go to church. A contemporary worship would be a trip for them. I don't know if they'd get past the casual form to see the heart of the worship, or they wouldn't get past it very easily. Uh, because the outward form has historically been such an important expression of the inward heart. On the whole, Ben, I think that they would be quite excited, maybe even invigorated, and 
satisfied by the creative things that the church is doing through media, through ministry, crossing borders, uh, all of those great challenges that every generation has encountered. I think we do a lot of things well. So as a last question then, are there any resources that you'd recommend for families, for church leaders working with young people, or really any of our listeners that might be benefiting from this conversation? For kids, I'm thinking of two books. There's a Linda Finlayson, God's Timeline, the big book of church history. Second is Stephen J. Nichols, uh, who, by the way, I should see, as well as some of you, both of your former profs this week uh, at a conference in San Diego, along with Ned Bustard, The Church History, ABCs, Augustine, and 25 Other Heroes of the Faith that can tell church history stories to our kids. And they have lessons uh, that are made really clear from the lives of the figures. And then for youth, I know of one book, uh, Richard Hanala's Trial and Triumph, Stories from Church History, that's Trial and Triumph, uh, which really represents history, doesn't it? The pros and cons wins and losses, trial and triumph. Uh, But really for youth, like I said before, any church history book has enough pictures to keep uh, any person's attention. I think it can provide a great context. Uh, Growing up, my family had encyclopedias on the shelf, not just online. And I remember for hours just looking at the pictures and moving through them. And I read because of it in ways that um, some kids were not able to, I'm sure. Oddly enough, I think this podcast represents one of many types of podcasts that are available for families. I mean, this is family-oriented dialogue, and there are many resources available. I I know that I'm sure Southern Seminary, y'all's alma mater, has this, but Covenant Seminary, mine, has free lectures online, and you can listen at the feet of some seminary professors, including church history, for example. But for youth, I'd recommend any church history book. They all are really pretty engaging. And every writer of history knows that you can't tell everything. So often there's a really good variety, variety of, of cultures in particular. Um, Asia and Africa receive attention in church histories now in ways that they didn't before. And so these are the types of resources that come to mind. Yeah, those are helpful. I've uh, seen some of those books. Um, Tony, I think maybe you probably know a little bit more about them. But Yeah, we, yeah we've uh, been blessed to have some of those books in our house. So uh, especially the, uh, the Church History A to Z uh, book. Our kids love that book. I mean, they, we go through that over and over again. And there's a series of ABCs. Uh, you know, movies, of course, of course, there are near enough church history movies that are out there, but there are many, many good ones. Uh, when you think of Bonhoeffer, who didn't receive mention today, uh, he's got a great story, and there's a decent movie around it. A movie like The Mission, where uh, Robert De Niro seems to become a Christian. I mean, you'll see that in every De Niro movie. Um, these don't have too much killing and not bad for a family and ends with a Bible verse, for example. Uh, but it shows conflict within the church when slave traders come in to capture Indians who are Christians. Does a Jesuit priest fight against them or does he stand passively in resistance against slave traders who are coming in into the village? 
So there are, of course, lots of good movies uh, related to church history. Luther, of course, is, is uh, remade about 12 years ago, and it's fantastic. And we, for the past two years, have homeschooled our kids and um, have watched some of the Torchlighter series. Now, um, mm-hmm. I, my my wife has seen more of them with the kids. I've seen a little bit, but just trying to introduce some of those stories and uh, like I said, just the power of narrative, whatever form is interesting to kids. And so um, it will get their attention. So if uh, Dr. Shelton, if listeners want to find out more about your work, um, where can they go? I blog now and I'm not sure I like it, but I'm doing <laughs> it and it, it does get some attention and it gets some reward. Uh, com. So uh, don't forget the W right there in front of com. There I have written three books that will be seen, including the Apostles one most recently. Uh, there's some scholarly articles that are mentioned there. A lot of your listeners won't be as interested in that. And then uh, also... There is some recent speaks, and really for any time that I've spoken on a topic that's listed on the website, I'd be more than happy to share if, uh, that that manuscript if, if someone were interested in the topic. Uh, but really, wbryanshelton.com, and that's very kind of you to ask uh, where they they might hear. I'm really excited about any way that I can help people to be able to understand theology and to appreciate church history. And so that those values kind of inspired this uh, this website and the blogs. Of course, are going to have some church history in them uh, because I love it. I think it's interesting. I think it's exciting, and I realize a lot of people don't think it's interesting and exciting. And I, I hope over the years I've become a better teacher, making it more relevant, maybe even more simple at times, uh, so that the lessons could be inspirational for the faith. And that's really what all three of us want in our ministry work. Yes, and I would just uh, speak for Tony as well, but uh, you are a good vehicle to to deliver that. And uh, and you're an engaging communicator, and I love the Lord. And so I've browsed around on your website, and I would encourage you to to get a hold of what you can from uh, Dr. Sheldon. So it was good to reconnect with you, and uh, I think I saw you about four years ago we were visiting Tacoa and um, kind of passed you at campus, but uh, it's good to to be able to actually have a conversation and, and talk about something that we all have uh, vested interest in. Yeah, it was good. And I definitely miss uh, our conversations when I was doing rounds in security back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I remember you wouldn't leave my office because you were so bored. And um, <laughs> yeah, you were a great you were a great conversation partner. And of course, both of you were good students, and your wives were good students, and. Uh, those were good days. They were days that uh, were preparing us for these days, and these days prepare us for the next day. And all of us should remember that we're all a part of church history. Well, thanks for the time today. Thank you, and God bless. Thanks so much to both of you, and thanks for your ministry and podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Family Ministry Podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends on social media. All new episodes are available to listen to on Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spreaker, and iTunes. We hope you have a great week, and join us again every first and third Thursday.